A few weeks ago, I told my audience about a new opportunity and you guys seemed to love it. They sent me the numbers. Hundreds of signups and thousands of dollars invested because I talked about how ordinary folks can invest like the billionaires of the world. How? By investing in multi-million dollar artworks on Masterworks. This fintech platform has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Fox Business, Bloomberg, and more. Masterworks isn't just impressive, their track record is too. Because since 2017, Masterworks has successfully offered and sold three paintings, with each realizing a net annualized gain above 30% per work. Although legally, I have to add, past performance is not indicative of future results, but still 30% is incredible. If you want to join over 400,000 members, getting started is as easy as one, two, three. You can get priority access at masterworks.io slash sad truth. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash cd. That's masterworks.io slash sad truth. Hey, everybody. This is uh, God Sad for the Sad Truth. Uh, it seems as though I can't uh, escape the Ferguson family because yesterday I had Neil Ferguson on and today I have his uh, incredible wife, Ayan Hersey Ali. How are you doing, Ayan? I'm doing great. Thank you, Gat. Great to see you. Likewise, likewise. I, we, we, of course, we've known of each other's work. Uh, we follow each other on social media, but we've never had a chance to meet. So it's a big, big thrill for me. I have always been amazed by your unbelievable courage. We'll get into that in a second. But let me just introduce you for a second. So you're a fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. You're the founder of the AHA Foundation. I think it was in 2007 you founded it. You're an activist, an author, a former politician in the Netherlands. Uh, your books uh, are the following, The Caged Virgin, Infidel, Nomad from Islam to America, Heretic, Why Islam Needs a Reformation Now, and your latest book, Pray, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. Did I get all that right? Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I thought I would start, I mean, I hope you're not too tired of repeating your life's trajectory, but for the people who may not know you, can you give us you know, a five-minute synopsis of your life? Uh, gosh, this seems like a long time ago. So I was born in 1969 in Mogadishu, Somalia, and uh, I'm now 52 years old and I live in California in the United States. And um, in those 52 years, I lived in Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia, Kenya. And then when I was 22 years old, I went to the Netherlands. So that was my first encounter with the Western world. And for me, I think that's a big deal having left what's called the developing world or in the case of Saudi Arabia, a theocracy, and then coming to actually the developed world and free democracies. And then from then, from 1992 onwards, um, I went to the University of Leiden. And I mentioned this because um, I have just, I'm just filled with a great deal of gratitude uh, for the quality education I got at that institution. And then went on to serve in uh, the parliament, the Dutch parliament. And then from there, I made my way to the United States, uh, the American Enterprise Institute. Um, and from there, the Belfer Institution. And uh, now I'm at Hoover. Now, it, it, in a nutshell, that's sort of my education and career and the countries that I lived in. Um, but I think more, the things that people are interested in is that I was raised a Muslim, a Muslim woman in a Muslim household, and um, I could have obviously just, you know, remained 
in agreement with everything that my father and in particular my family and in particular my father um, had set out for me but I didn't do that my father forced me to marry a man I didn't want to uh, I repeat that this is very common it, it's not something unique that happened to me and I didn't agree with that and I found an opportunity to get away to run away and uh, luckily for me, the man I was married off to lived in Canada, where you are, <laughs> he was in Ontario, I believe. But instead of going to Canada in 1992, um, this is about 30 years ago now, instead of going to Canada, I went to the Netherlands. I asked for asylum. I was granted asylum. I learned the language. Uh, I did all sorts of odd jobs. And uh, yeah, everything for me was actually quite average until uh, 2001, what? September 2001. That's when 9-11 happened. And that then, I mean, I, I, I was attracted to public service. I was attracted to think tank work. Um, but what happened on 9-11-2001 was uh, so sensational in a way. I mean, for those of us who lived through that time, it has, it's had, I would say, a major impact on my life. But, but had, so prior to 2001, had you interacted with Islam in a way that already got you to a trajectory where you were questioning elements of Islam? Or is it, you know, seeing the buildings go down and it being attributed to, to Islam that sort of drove you over the edge? Well, I think I was the kind of Muslim who voted with Hafiz. I left my Muslim family and I ran away from the lifestyle of a Muslim girl, Muslim woman. Um, but I didn't really question Islam or God or the Quran or the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, I just quietly left and I identified as a Muslim until 2001. It's only after that event and after I started taking a position and saying, okay, what these 19 men did is horrifying to me. And then I had to not only respond to the horror of the, of the attack and bringing buildings down and the destruction and killing innocent people, I also had to respond, obviously, to the morality of whether I agreed with that type of, um, of edict from they were saying, this is what the Quran said, this is what the what Muhammad said. And so fast I had to establish, is that true? Which was far more dangerous than my attitude towards uh, the horrific attacks. And I, you know, on an empirical level, what these men were saying about the Quran and Hadith, that was correct. And as a Muslim, for me, the moral question was, if I disagreed with that, what did it say then about my faith in Islam. What did it say about my faith in the Quran? And that's where I reached. That's really only then did I take um, what you would call a stance to actually think about these things. Now, I keep referring to the University of Leiden. And I wonder, had I not spent those five years at the University of Leiden, would I have been capable of actually questioning the philosophy of Islam? the theology of Islam, and would I have reached the same conclusions? Uh, wh speak, why? Uh, what was specific about uh, Leiden? Sorry? What was specific about Leiden that, that gave you that ability to do so? 
Well, it was five years where they taught us how to think and how to think critically about things and how to uh, not duck difficult questions, but actually go to difficult questions, whether these questions are moral or economic or political or social. That's what they taught us. And this is, I think, in our conversation today, I know we'll make our way to universities and their purpose. But for me, and I keep saying, I really am grateful for that period. Had I not spent those five years in Leiden, had I not been uh, subjected, well, not subjected, but had I not had the privilege of being put in that, immersed in that uh, environment where you had to question and question and learn how to question critically, but also learn to listen to other people's perspectives. I, I don't know if I would have reached the same conclusions. I would say probably not. I would have probably remained the kind of Muslim who would say, I don't want to talk about horror. I don't want to talk about the terrorist attacks. I don't want to talk about what's done in the name of Islam. Got So, of course, in, in, in the parasitic mind, I talk about some of the cognitive strategies that both Westerners and Muslims use to, you know, either ignore or justify or, or, or you know, uh, condone all of the nonsense that you can find in these kinds of religious books. But in your case, having grown up in a, you know, in a, a strict, uh, you know, uh, practicing Islamic family, what is it that didn't cause you to see the ugly tenets of Islam? Is, is it because you didn't actually interact with those books very seriously? You only knew that there's a God and there's this guy, Muhammad, who's not. So the cafeteria Islam, is it is it your ignorance that didn't allow you to recognize those ugly elements? Or is it that you were aware of them, but there was a mechanism by which you can justify why they exist? Or oh, if only you understood better Westerner, you would know that kill, kill, kill means to kill with love and so on and so forth. It, what was it in your case that allowed you to navigate that? Well, first of all, to answer the first part of your question, um, that was what stopped me from navigating before. Right. Was uh, there's just one word for it, and it's fear. Right. I, yeah, it's absolutely terrified of questioning Allah, questioning the contents of the Quran, questioning the hadith or the legacy of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, Absolute fear. Even in my own thoughts, when I'm alone with myself, that wasn't something I was going to do because I, you know, I now have small children, so I understand the process of indoctrination <laughs> much better. But I was actually indoctrinated, like most Muslims, that even to ask, to question, to doubt, is the greatest sin that you can commit. So with that fear fully established. Uh, I understand and I really empathize with most Muslims when they try to avoid all of these questions. When they say, I just want to be a good Muslim, I'm a good person. I, I Don't take me to that, that cognitive place where I'm going to be forced to start questioning Allah's purpose for me in life or what Allah tells me to do, and I just do it. I blindly. I don't. I, I don't ask questions. I understand that. I now empathize with that. It's not now. I've always empathized with it. Um, but given, you know, we were confronted with atrocity after atrocity. 9/11 was this big one. But then, following 9/11, the terrorists were, started to be active in Europe. When I was in Parliament, I think it was the 4th of March. Uh, Barcelona, the Barcelona train bombing had happened. And in 2007, uh, 2005, it was in London. So you couldn't 
keep ducking and saying, you know, these are young kids, you know, they are disenfranchised, all of the excuses that we've had. There was a time, I think, morally, when as a Muslim, you were forced to say, I'm not only going to condemn the actions of these young people who are committing these atrocities, I'm also going to start, um, uh, uh, you know, facing uh, the religious and theological principles that inspire and often command these young men to commit these uh, atrocities. Yeah, I, and so uh, in, in, in chapter six of the parasitic mind, the chapter is titled uh, Ostrich Parasitic Syndrome, because, you know, you put you bury your head in the sand and you let parasitic ideas, you know, destroy your capacity to think. I actually use as an example all of the various, uh, f- quote, factors that Westerners have used to justify why those folks committed the terrorist acts. And I, I literally went through a list. Some of these seem so ludicrous that they come across as though it's part of the, the GAD satire repertoire, but they're genuine, right? So so Bill Nye explains to us that the Bataclan uh, attack in France what could very well have been due to uh, climate change. And then he offers a, quote, set of causal mechanisms to explain that. It could be due to lack of art exposure. If only those Belgian guys had been exposed to more Picasso and Chagall, then they wouldn't have done what they did. They needed more aesthetic appreciation in their life. It's it's due to beard bullying. It's it's maybe engineering, studying engineering that causes that. Now, these are the people who say that are not escapees from mental institutions. They're typically professors and, and highfalutin folks who espouse mm-hmm. this. I mean, I have my own thinking as to why they do it. Why do you think they can fool themselves in such ridiculous manners to try to protect at all costs noble Islam? I think, first of all, it's complex. And then for someone like me, I'm then engaging in the act of speculation. I'm thinking, okay, so I hear exactly, you know, these these were and still are uh, the excuses that uh, these so-called intellectuals use to apologize for or to excuse behaviors that are inexcusable um, to say, uh, I mean, remember Karen Armstrong's book, first one published in 2001, where somehow she had um, reasoned her way into saying that actually it was uh, Christianity or Catholicism that caused uh, Mohammed to come around with these terrible ideas without saying that Muhammad had any terrible ideas. It was, I mean, just the the most ridiculous, comical, uh, cognitive acrobatics you've ever seen. And I agree with you. A lot of it just feels like you're reading satire. Yeah. It it doesn't make sense. Um, And then you have all the counter arguments. But why do these people do this? it's, it's well-intentioned. It comes from a good place. People, it, these intellectuals are making these excuses. I mean, some are cynical, but I would say most people, they really just want to be seen as welcoming and warm towards yeah. Muslims. They don't want to be seen as xenophobes. Maybe they're dealing with their own xenophobic uh, impulses. Uh, what Some of the things that strike me uh, in Europe and even here uh, the biggest apologists for Islam and for Islamists uh, among Westerners are people who are white, they're straight, 
they're in the middle class sector of in terms of their income and highly educated and they their friends their spouses their their whole world is a bubble so in their daily practice they actually are xenophobic they don't really encounter right. uh, muslims or the problems that muslims have but they're very uh, uh, very vocal in telling the rest of us that we are the ones who are bigoted right. and we are the ones uh, who are causing trouble and at times you know you can just say what was shakespeare's uh, the lady does protest too, too much that's right so i think a lot of these intellectuals they do protest too much and they do um project all sorts of problems on the average man and woman just engaging in commonsensical uh, scrutiny of Islam, and they they project all sorts of issues that they have. Uh, I mean, I don't want to change the subject, but it make it reminds me of this woman Robin DiAngelo, who has declared every person is a racist. But then, when you read her work, she's a raving racist. Yeah, and yeah. I think that it does make one feel good to project that. I think these people actually Islam they're afraid of Islam more than you and I, huh? yeah. but they project their you know, psychological fears on other people and say, no, you are the one who is, why are you asking me these questions? You are the xenophobe. And what, and what, what's, what's, what's galling to me is someone with your past and, and, and yeah, I'm not sure how, how familiar you are with mine. You know, we're Lebanese Jews who escaped Lebanon under imminent threat of execution. Uh, it wasn't very good to be Jewish in the Middle East when we were there. Uh, so I have had a very personal and intimate interaction with Islam. Uh, Arabic is my mother tongue. So in a sense, we're the nightmare for those who are apologizing for Islam because you can't uh, discount, our, right? We're not Jim Smith from Arkansas who's just trying to feel good and virtue signal because we can quote the passages. We can speak the language, right? So, I mean, for you to delegitimize de me, you have to basically argue... I don't have a PhD in Islamic studies from Al-Azhar University. Yeah. But short of that, you can't delegitimize me because I grew up in that culture. I speak the language. I know Islam inside out, the doctrines of Islam. So that's what's so galling is that the people who talk down to you, Ayan, know probably one one hundredth of what you know about Islam. And yet you're the bigot, you're the xenophobe, you're the Islamophobe. And I wish they could come up with something more clever than a phobia. Yeah. Because in my case, for instance, of course, I am afraid of parts of Islam, uh, but I know exactly what I'm afraid of because I lived as a Muslim. I lived with Muslims. I still, my parents are Muslim. My father passed away, but my family is still Muslim. And some of my family members are way more orthodox and radical than I would say the average Muslim. In my case, I know precisely who I fear and what I fear. And um, it is, I would say, quite empirical. Uh, but they know, will say, forgive me for interrupting you. Or leave the, the religion, you're going to be killed. Uh, I think that I take that very, very seriously. But they it, don't know. It must they be the wrong Islam. I, 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 so they come up with a phobia. Phobia is an irrational fear. It is not, you know, people who are beheading other people, who are kidnapping them, who are uh, throwing gay people off. I mean, I, it just, it, the ISIS uh, rule of parts of Iraq and Syria is not so long ago. And those people have actually shown us what they mean by establishing an Islamic state. 
And that was a state established according to the teachings of the Quran and the Hadith. They were trying to emulate the Prophet's years in Medina as much as they possibly could. And for me, because I grew up with those texts, and I could see the execution of them. I know precisely what I'm criticizing. I also know precisely what I fear. I know precisely what I think of it. And what I find about the apologists is they really don't. They don't know what they fear. They're afraid of being afraid of all Muslims, which I am not, which you are not, because you know that I, I don't have to put this disclaimer everywhere. Not all Muslims are terrorists. I don't have to do that. I know that. They have to say that because they have no clue. And I think they are scared. And but, I think that they want to project their fear on us. But so to to your point of, you know, here is ISIS doctrine. Here is Islamic doctrine. Here's how my family uh, acted when I was growing up. To each of those, they will apply the weaponry of the no true Scotsman fallacy, right? It's <laughs> not, that's not a true Muslim, right? So Al-Qaradawi -Qara Al doesn't know true Islam. So the leading Sunni cleric is actually misrepresenting Islam. Osama bin Laden doesn't know Islam, but my friend who's named Ahmad, who eats prosciutto, who drinks wine and who is gay, that is the true representation of Islam, right? So, I mean, how can you, right? So it's very, very difficult to actually engage those folks because they are impervious to any kind of form of reasoning by which you can try to alter their minds. Yes, but they get mugged by reality, and that's what we've seen. Every time they, you know, they make these claims, uh, you know, their beloved uh, Muslim whom they were just saying the other day is uh, wonderful, the Tariq Ramadans of this world. Yes. Yeah. People with their teachings in hand, you know, they prove the apologists wrong. So what then happens in the public sphere? when these people are mugged, the intellectuals are mugged by reality, is that their work is ignored. Right. So you have to ask yourself, where is the work that Timothy Garton Ash and Ian Buruma and Peter Oborn and all of Karen Armstrong, where are they today? It's, they've been rendered irrelevant. They had nothing to say of any importance. They decided they were going to dig their intellectual heels in denial. It didn't work. They were overtaken by the reality, mugged by the reality of ISIS. But do you think that the public policymakers, for example, who are designing our immigration policies, have they also been mugged by reality or are they still walking in a stupor of unicornia? Um, I think that they also have been mugged by reality. You see an um, adaptation to reality of some of these policies in France, in Britain, in Germany. Uh, I think what the public, the public policymakers have to deal with and this is, I think, uh, built into um, liberal democracies that respect the rule of law, is that they, they do need to have, um, they, they need to develop policies that adequately address the threats of the Islamists, their schools, their mosques, their infrastructure of indoctrination, their infrastructure of raising money, their infrastructure of assembling, all of that. They need to deal with that and address it properly. On the other hand, our constitutions all say that that is precisely what is protected for citizens. So to, 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 to find some kind of balanced response to that, I think is going to continue uh, as long as we have liberal democracies. Do you, do you I'm sorry. 
Go ahead. So go ahead. I, what I think interesting, what is interesting now is it was one thing to have a foreign theological ideology come from the outside into the West and challenge all of these things I just told you, the rule of law, the freedom of religion, the freedom to assemble, all of that. Now what we are facing is this homegrown uh, set of ideas, disparate set of ideas, that are challenging the very same institutions and the set very same ideas. It's very interesting for someone like me who's been following the external challenge and how we responded to that, watch these internal challenges. I'm talking, I have the walk in, in mind right now. Yeah. And see how do we respond to the homegrown challenge? To reason, to freedom, to women's rights, to logic, to equality. How do we, if we can figure that out, I think it would be so much easier to deal with external pressures. We'll come to the walk in a second, uh, since that's certainly within my wheelhouse. To come to it in a second, but you know what I think is why this is the right moment to discuss it, is because you have to ask yourself. I have someone like Ian Baroma in mind. He's well known in Canada. He spent a great deal of energy trying to make those excuses for the Islamists. He, we talked about that. Then the woke went after him and silenced him and cost him his own job. And now we live in this age of cancellations of intellectuals who are, you know, moderately relativists, moderately multiculturalists. And now look what's happening to them. So at first, you know, they had this whole set of arguments about protecting minorities and what we owe minorities as a majority in the history of colonialism and so on. But what are we going to do about these, uh, you know, Ibram X. Kendi and Robin DiAngelo and these types? What would they say to them? Right. How would they deal with that? See how I'm enjoying what's going on? <laughs> well, look, uh, I, the reason why I dedicate two chapters to Islam in the parasitic mind and then a lot of it also deals with woke is because both sets of ideologies share many of the same features in parasitizing human minds. That's the exact point, right? So, for example, at one point, I draw a distinction between Sharia law and some of the progressive tenets. So, for example, in Sharia law, as you well know, Ayan, uh, justice is not blind, right? So if a Muslim man kills a Jewish woman, that carries a different penalty than if a... You know, vice versa. Well, yeah. it's the same thing with progressive logic, right? Who gets to speak when it depends on what my, you know, how I score in victimology poker. So the 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 inherent structure of these two ideologies is similar. They might manifest themselves in slightly different ways. One will decapitate you literally. The other one will cancel you from your job. But it's yeah. the same reflex. It's the same cognitive structure. And that's why I think it's totally reasonable to both talk about Islam and about wokeism as sort of one supra phenomenon. I think that's interesting. But then now we go to the liberals who are not progressive or not radically progressive. So I'm just talking about those people we used to call center-left. Right. And if the, the key, uh, I'd say, most prominent and most influential intellectuals of the center-left were making all sorts of excuses for the Islamist theology and its practitioners based on the argument that they are a minority and we have an obligation 
in terms of correcting our history to uh, maybe exempt them from some of the rules that we apply to ourselves, the way they treat their women, you know, their polygamy uh, strategies. Uh, they can have their own Islamist schools. They can, let's just, and that would be then a form of tolerance. That's the argument they were making. Would those same uh, center-left prominent intellectuals now say that of the woke? What I find interesting is that they've gone completely silent. Right. They're doing nothing at the moment. I don't see, I, you know, there are one or two coming out here and there. But that's very, very interesting and actually very disturbing. Well, I think, so So it, I, I make a distinction between deontological ethics, right? Deontological ethics is there are absolute truths, right? You, you could yeah. not subjugate, su subject a child to gouging of their eyes or female genital mutilation, period. There's no cultural relativism. Consequentialist ethics would be, it's okay to lie if I'm trying to spare someone's feelings, right? So these are two different ethical systems. Now, for most things, consequentialism works, right? But for yeah. some things, like the defense of truth, then I argue you have to be deontological. I think what happens to the folks that you're talking about is that they are consequentialists. So, that, so for example... Someone that we both know, and maybe he won't be happy that I'll say this, Sam Harris, I used to be quite friendly with him, now less so, because in my view, he committed some deontological violations. So for example, when he gets up and says, good job, Jack Dorsey, for getting rid of orange Himmler, Donald Trump, because you know it makes sense that we he does, he's not given a platform, then you're giving up the deontological principle of defending freedom of speech, even to Holocaust deniers. So I think that's the problem, Ayan, that even some of our lofty friends who are supposed, supposedly intellectuals become yeah. consequentialists when it's politically expedient to do so. Yeah. I will say to you, I love Sam Harris, and yeah. he is my friend. Yes. And my attitude to my friends, very, very close friends like that, whom I love and admire, is it doesn't, for me, the, the friendship and the affection I have for them is not diminished because we disagree or because we have different views, at least not from me to the other person. Yes. So if I was a boss of Twitter, I would not close Donald Trump's Twitter account. Um, but Sam and other people uh, feel that way. Yeah. And there are, I think there are things where I think I can explain why I would not do that. And of course, I would be very interested to hear what Sam has to say. But it wouldn't. It, I don't think that should affect our relationship, our friendship. Our By the way, our friendship was not affected because of me. He unfollowed me because I was apparently a Trump supporter. So I completely agree with you. It, it, if tomorrow he called me and said, let's get together for dinner, I wouldn't care and I'd be happy to do so. So I completely agree with you. Yeah, but I think one of the things, so we do, we're going through a lot of things very quickly, but one of the developments we are seeing, I am watching with horror, with my Muslim background. It used to be like that. Uh, when I was a Muslim, if you uh, questioned any of the basic Muslim tenets, if you said, I don't want to pray five times a day, there were consequences. And some of those consequences affected relationships to the point where parents would disown children because their children made a decision like, you know, a young man saying, coming out as gay, and the parents would say, I don't love you anymore. You're not my son anymore. I wish you dead. 
The whole concept of honor killings comes from these sorts of disagreements of the parent disagreeing with the lifestyle of the child based on religious edicts. So I'm very wary of saying someone has said something that horrifies me. That person is my friend, so I'm not going to have anything to do with them. I'm going to unfollow them. And I think I don't like that. And I see this development everywhere in the West. And it, it, it's just, um, it's wrong. Well, I actually argue, I use the principle from, from another Lebanese author, uh, Nassim Talib, who's got, you know, he's written the book on anti-fragility. I you always, know him very well, yeah. You, you do? Okay. I just spoke to him. He's in Lebanon I, a couple of days ago uh, by phone. Uh, so Nassim, uh, of course, as you know, talked about anti-fragility. I apply it precisely to friendship. And I argue that friendships have to be anti-fragile right for for us to be true friends we need to be able to disagree on on important things and then walk away shaking hands and still loving each other so that's what the stressor is it's the fact that you hold a position that's different from mine and we could remain friends so if if our friendship can't be anti-fragile then it's not worth having it I, I actually agree with you on that. And I think that it, it's not only uh, anti-fragile, it's also very interesting for me to hear the other perspective. And I don't have to agree with it, but it is, it's good to hear the other side. I think that if you want to you know, talk about, again, words that we throw out around these days, uh, the concept of empathy yeah. <laughs> is only if you allow someone else to actually say what they think and what they feel, even if it will offend you or hurt you. I think that's empathy is that when you're prepared to listen to the other side right. or listen to a dear friend who has a different viewpoint than yourself, you don't have to agree with them. Right. And that's very different from relativism. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I want yeah, yeah I, I want to talk in a second about reformation of Islam, but it, it, I just want to bring it personal in a second. So when you talked about your uh, synopsis of your life's trajectory, you know, you didn't talk about the, the security challenges that you've had. Actually, Neil mentioned it briefly yesterday when he was talking about, you know, why you guys decided to live uh, to leave Harvard. So for the viewers and listeners who are watching this, you know, Ayan has had a lot of difficulties in terms of some of the people who wanted to do her cause her some harm. Now, I experienced that on a minuscule level compared to yours. In 2017, I was getting tons of death threats to the point where I had to go when I would be lecturing at the university that had to be security with me. Then I went with my university representatives to the Montreal police where we had to file an official report and so on. But again, while while that was very traumatizing, it is nothing compared to, you know, the kind of challenges that you faced. Can you tell us a bit about how it is to, I mean, are you able to at some point kind of habituate to that reality and go on with your life? Or are you sort of walking around skittish, you know, every minute of every day looking over your shoulder? I think you do have to um, habituate it. it you, you get used to it. Um, and that that's because that's the reality. I mean, you get into these things and then you say, there are times, of course, I ask myself, oh gosh, why did I get myself into this mess? But then uh, I stopped thinking that way very quickly because there are a lot of people who got into worse messes to give us what we have today. There's a lot of bloodshed to get these institutions that we have to develop these ideas, etc. So I don't think for us, you know, we face challenges and, and they're they're tough, but they're not nearly as tough as what you know, Muslims in Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Iran are facing. 
to fight for the improvement of their lives and the position of women, of homosexuals, for tolerance and liberty of fellow human beings. So uh, you habituate, but you also know why you did it. And I, I think it's even rewarding in a sense because I compare myself to the people who just sit there and complain about how terrible everything is and then don't do anything. And then the response is avoidance, turning off the news, not talking about these issues, just really, um, and that's very appealing, I have to say, even to me, it's extremely appealing to say, is there just a way of not having to deal with the world on the world's terms? Um, But appealing as it is, it's not realistic. And I don't even think it's, uh, I don't want to say it's not moral, but it's, it's not realistic for me. Right. Now, so that, that leads me to my the next uh, personal question I was going to ask you. So one of the things that I talk about when I kind of try to encourage people to speak out on all the woke stuff that they see on universities and they say, but I'm afraid to lose my job. I'm afraid that someone will unfriend me. And then I usually answer something very similar to what you answered, which is, do you think the people who landed on the beaches of Normandy were guaranteed safe passage? Uh, they knew they were going to be mowed down like little mosquitoes by the German machine guns. And yet here we are standing because they died. But I wanted to ask you, so I talk about activate your inner honey badger, right? In case you don't, right? The honey badger has actually been ranked as the most ferocious and fierce animal. Size of a small dog, it could withstand an attack of six adult lions. Now you are, I mean, if we look in the dictionary under honey badger, there's the picture of Ayan Hersey Ali. You are the ultimate queen honey badger. Is it something that you think you kind of discovered later in life as you dealt with these? Or, you know, could I see you when you were eight years old? I know that you were afraid to question, but did that honey badger-ness, was it, was it brewing in you? Or is it something that you discovered, you know, in 2001 plus? Oh, it was brewing in me, but I think it manifested itself in, you know, expressing, uh, I could be very aggressive or, you know, responding to something that was done in the name of Islam, just not questioning the basic principles. Uh, I responded ferociously to my brother getting more privileges than I did. (laughs) And that, you know, that's the constant if you're a child. He can go out and play. He can do all of these things, and I can't. I listened to these incredible arguments between my father and my mother, where my mother was saying she can't go to school because she's a girl. And I responded to that by you know, making myself heard in, you know, in our society, maybe you know this from Lebanon, you're not supposed to talk back to your parents. If you do, you're going to get a good beating. Uh, So I knew I would risk the beating, but of course I responded. I just didn't question the basic principles. And I think that is the, like I said, I voted with my feet first. So dispositionally, you were a honey badger. It just manifested itself in different contexts and different situations. But yeah, then... I wasn't going to do what I was told. I would have Nancy Drew books and other you know, novels inside the Quran reading. So when my mother is on the other side, she can see the cover of the Quran. She thinks I'm reading the Quran, but inside the Quran, <laughs> I have pages. So there are all sorts of uh, dissenting. And I was, I was dissenting in so many different ways. I just didn't get to the point of actually saying, you know what? And I see some of my Muslim friends do now, and they say, Muhammad, go to hell. I'm not going to listen anymore. I didn't do that. Right. 
Yeah, in, in my family, that would have cost you your head immediately. Wow. Uh, yeah. do, do you think, so notwithstanding, I, I think we probably both will agree that much of the honey badger attitude that someone exhibits or doesn't is probably part of your innate temperament. But I, I'd like to give people hope because if it's only due to your temperament, that means we can't change it. It's, it's, it's non-malleable. Yeah. Do you think that there is a way through all of your outreach program that you've been doing all these years to actually take someone who's very tepid, who's very timid, who, who's very passive, and then, uh, you know, trigger a sense of honey badgerness in them? I think, so you have the honey badger. And, and I think, I like to think about this in the framework of risk-taking. Right. How much risk are you willing to take? So not in an academic meta way of thinking about risk, um, but just on your personal level. So I think most of us, that is innate, that we know, um, we anticipate the consequence of our actions. And I think most people will take action if others have. So once there is a group formation or a large enough community that will all stand up, and once you sense that that's the case, you will stand up. Right. And a lot, of, you know, let's take, let's use the example of um, victims of honor killings. Before they're victims of honor killings, they're victims of honor violence. And so these young women um, within that, inside the family structure, um, they're suffering, they're being denied their rights, they're beaten, they're abused. And why is it that one girl will leave and thrive and another girl knows she can leave, but she won't because she fears the risk of leaving? What would happen to her once she leaves her family? She's more horrified by that than staying in the suffering. But then what you see is if a number of girls have done it and they've been successful, some of these young, timid, passive women would say, well, maybe I can. At least they have somewhere to go, someone's phone number, somebody whom they can look up to. So this is very human, I think. Right. Uh, Are you, to continue with the personal questions, are you, have you reconciled with some of your family, your nuclear family members with whom you had a rupture with and now you're on good terms or has that gone to waste? It's finished. I went to my father's deathbed and I think we were not, uh, absolutely not aligned when it comes to our worldviews. My father died a believing, pious Muslim. And he always believed to the end that I would convert back to Islam, that I would become just as pious. And he used to say to me, I'm confident you will do that. Um, My mother is alive. I talk to her on a regular basis, and she is the same. She's a pious Muslim. And in every conversation, all she tells me is how she's worried about my hereafter. She says, don't think about me. Don't think about anything, anything else. But do you understand that when you die... In the day of judgment, if you're not a Muslim, if you don't believe in God, you will be one of those who will be burned eternally. And I, I, I can empathize with her thinking of it that way because she's convinced that that's true. Um, but I have stopped um, trying to convince her. I've, I've stopped. All I do is, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And I think... <laughs> With age, 
with maturity, uh, you kind of accept she's my mother. She's she's saying this because she cares. Um, it's interesting because a few years ago she wanted me dead. <laughs> um, literally. Literally, because for her, the, some of the things I said and did in public was so awful um, that for her it was better uh, that I died than uh, than than to live around. You know, give these atheist um, lectures or lectures on why atheism is better than religion or Islam. Or I mean, to her that was just fundamentally wrong it is the worst sin that you can commit and you have a child your own child committing that sin so that's what she felt but she's also a lot older and now she's just in a place where all she does is pray she prays wow. every day what about so let's 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 forget the theological component what about the fact that you married the white kafir neil ferguson would that not have caused some problems just in of itself forget about you didn't do anything else other than make that mate choice, would that not have put us in hot waters? It would have, and it would have put me in hot water. I remember in this was in 1996. Um, I had a Dutch boyfriend, and when we started going steady, and we thought this is a very serious relationship, I told my brother, and I thought my brother had hung up on me. It was back in the day when you had landlines. <laughs> I thought he had hung up on me because on the other side was silence. And then when I said, hello, hello, are you there? I could hear through his breathing the tension in his voice. And he said, I want you to end this relationship immediately. And he hung up. So that was, it's never been, there's never been any doubt. It's never been unclear to me um, that my uh, you know, choice of partners is uh, unacceptable, completely unacceptable to my family. But it's the it's the it's that they must be Muslim. They could be any race, but they must be Muslim, correct? They must that, be Muslim. Yeah, because yeah. I, I I tested my. I mean, ideally, they should be your cousin. <laughs> so, first cousin, ideally, yes. Uh, I first uh, cousin, yeah. ideally within the clan. Right. But you know, if you are going to do it, then please uh, convert whoever you are going to marry into a Muslim. And that, I mean, again, also is a thing to time, and to being um, stubborn. Um, I think my brother, all members of my family, they know that I am not going to. Um, go back to their side of the argument. So uh, at this point, what's left for them but to accept? Right. Uh, to accept me. Yeah. I, I was going to say just to 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 build on what you said about whether your parents would accept a, a non-Muslim. I once many years ago asked my parents. You know, it, it's not only Muslims who are tribal about you know these kinds of issues. Of course, I asked them, "What if I one day brought home a Ethiopian girl?" Would she, would you, would, and the reason why I had thought of that is because I've gone to my nephew's uh, high school graduation and there was this, you know, beautiful, uh, her name was Batya, a, a, a Ethiopian girl, but Jewish, right? A Falasha. And uh, so I said to them, what if I brought home, uh, at the time I wasn't married many years ago, I brought home a Ethiopian girl. So my parents looked at me and said, is she Jewish? I said, okay, fine, she is. They said, well, we don't care. So in their case, right, it didn't matter. They didn't give a damn about your skin color. Like literally could not care. You just had to marry a Jewish girl. Whatever it is, she's got to be Jewish. That's it. That's it, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, well, it's very complicated. I think, you know, we talk a lot about racism in uh, the Western world, and especially in the U.S. The U in the U.S., can't talk about anything else. Um, but the real racists really are still where I come from. Uh, and it's, goodness, people are intolerant of other people's skin color, shape of their face, their religions, their everything. So bigotry is... is Bigotry is something of the developing world. It's it's really passé in the developed world. Uh, can I assume that you and Ilhan Omar are very good friends? No, you cannot. <laughs> We're not good friends. Uh, we do come from the same country. I even want to hazard a guess and say she's probably of the Darod clan. That's uh, the clan I was born into. Maybe even the Macherten. Her features to me tell me she looks very Macherten. But aside from that, I don't think we share anything in common. I, I think put, putting you next to each other and saying w one of these individuals is what a sane immigration policy looks like would be a great <laughs> advertisement. As, as a professor of marketing, I think that would be a great advertisement. One or two last questions, because I know you have a, a hard stop at two o'clock. Uh, very quickly, it's a very complicated question. In one of your books, you talk about reformation of Islam. Do you, are you still as optimistic that theologically Islam could be reformed? Well, my book, A Heretic, was a challenge to my Muslim friends and Muslims I admire who really want to address the theological problems, which are very, very many. It was a challenge to say, if you want to, if you're really serious about changing Islam, making it more modern and tolerant and uh, in sync with uh, the world of humanity, of yeah, humanity and human rights, uh, here are the five key things that you need to change and that you need to address. And I don't know if they will. I just know that there is a preparedness, but also as we've talked about the threats. And very quickly, those five things are this attitude towards the Quran and the Prophet Muhammad, that you can't change, uh, you can't challenge anything they've said. This is, here's your moral guide for all time and all places. So you see why that's a problem. <laughs> and then second is this whole body of law called Sharia law. Um, that if you know, once you say we have, you accept there's a separation of religion and politics, then you are going to accept laws are man-made and Sharia law has to become a historical document. And um, then there's, it's not very well known, but it's called... Um, commanding right and forbidding wrong. And this is the obligation of every Muslim. This is horizontal. Every Muslim has the obligation to tell uh, the other Muslim uh, to abide by Muslim rules. So Sharia is not just a top-down government enforced set of you know, laws and behavioral codes. It's enforced by your fellow uh, Muslims. And so that has to change because if that changing the top-down doesn't make any sense unless you change also uh, the bottom-up stuff. And then, of course, there is holy war, jihad. Uh, and that is the Muslim's obligation in his dealings with the non-Muslim, either convert him or kill him. Uh, that's a very, I mean, it's an understatement to say that's problematic. <laughs> <laughs> but for any Muslim reformer, they just you can't run away from that reality. That's, these are the things. If once you change that, Islam then becomes like any other religion. You can be spiritual, you have your cultural heritage, you can uh, develop and uh, cultivate all the good stuff. 
um, the architecture and the history and the food and the encounters with other civilizations. You can cultivate all of that. But here are these five problematic things. And I think Islam will only be reformed if those things are taken away, somehow edited away. Okay, last question. And, and put in a history, you know, like in, in yeah. museums. And, yeah. La last question. Much of your work, uh, at least your books, I mean, deals with Islam and issues related to Islam. Do you ever foresee a time in your future projects where you decide, you know, I've, ha I've said all that I need to say about this. I'm now going to do a history of, uh, you know, Somali art or whatever it is. Do you yeah, see yeah. that or are you committed to, to these issues, which, of course, are, are of uh, civilizational importance? Well, I would say right now, I actually have, you know, there's this whole challenge, like we talked about, from within the woke and what it's doing to our institutions. So I do work on Islam and radical Islamic ideas and where things are at. I mean, it's really the continent that's now being destabilized by uh, Islamists. It's Africa. Right. So a lot of this has shifted away from being the main challenge here, it's still the main challenge in Europe, aside from uh, Putin's nuclear threats. Uh, the next big thing for Europeans, it's how to live with fellow Muslims who are citizens, who are born in Europe, and those who are coming from Muslim countries. But for me right now, in terms of what I'm working on, it's trying to figure out how we deal with uh, the woke, and the erosion of the institutions that we have. Uh, that is, and that's a big challenge. Happily, a lot of people are doing it. I'm not the only uh, person. Imagine, imagine being me, the prof a professor who is as anti-woke as I am. It's, it's, I think it's probably as dangerous for me to be a professor in the woke institutions as it is to walk in Raqqa with a star yeah. of David. That's how crazy <laughs> my world is, but I, I hear yeah. you. Uh, I think right now there is this the real and true resistance that we have to to be working on a, a priority. It is this. It is uh, what Elon Musk calls the mind, the woke mind virus. Right. I, I wonder where he might have gotten that concept from. Uh, Ayan, stay on the line. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. I just want to say goodbye to you offline. I know it was a bit rushed. Hopefully we'll have a chance to talk again. Truly delightful to talk to you. Thank you so much. Same here, God. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. You. Hi, everybody. I hope that you enjoyed my chat with Ayan Hersey Ali. Uh, if you appreciate the work that uh, I uh, offer and the content that I create, please consider supporting me in one of several ways. You can support my work through Patreon, through PayPal, so through Subscribestar. You can also uh, uh, click the heart icon at the bottom of the description section of the YouTube clip to show your support. You can also share my clips. You can post comments. So thank you very much for your support.